I think a lot of us left and started our own companies because we didn't want to deal with BS, like company mission, philosophy, and values, because we've all worked at large companies who use these buzzwords, right? Philosophy, values, mission, and then don't live up to them. And they're kind of made up in some boardroom and they're fiction. I was against introducing these into my companies that I was starting. But about the point that you hit, I'd say it's between seven to 10 people. You start to realize that if you don't set some type of agenda, you know, for the company or, or mission and values, then it will happen on its own. You're in the right place. It's another episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. And every week since 2010, we've been shipping content for ambitious startups, founders who want to maybe not change the whole world, but just change their little corner of it. Thanks for joining me today. I'm excited to dive in to listener questions. This is a Rob solo adventure. And today I'm going to be talking about things ranging from diversity in startups to timing for mission, philosophy, and values, how to develop features for a new app, whether to go wide or go deep, and several others. But before we dive in, I want to let you know that tickets to MicroConf Remote 4.0 are now on sale. For this event, we'll be talking all things finance for Bootstrap founders. We're going to cover topics like pricing, budgeting, accounting, financing, and investing. The event is virtual. It takes place May 3rd through the 5th from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. daily. I believe that is central time, but I will need to check on that. Register now at microconfremote.com and use promo code MCMONEY, like MicroConf Money, MCMONEY at microconfremote to get a special deal. I hope to see you there. My first question is from Justin at beamjobs.com. That's B-E-A-M jobs.com about diversity in startups. And Justin says, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I've been listening quasi-religiously for about four years. Working in the hiring space, I see firsthand how subtle and not-so-subtle factors conspire and leave certain groups of people massively underrepresented in tech. I'm curious, as someone who's been in this space for many years, how do you think about these issues? More generally, for those of us that value creating a more equitable and diverse startup ecosystem, what are some things we can and should do to make that possible? Great question. Thanks, Justin. So I think I'll start with the end, which Justin asked, you know, what are some things we can or should do to make it possible for there to be a more diverse startup ecosystem? And that is Silicon Valley. It's venture funded. It's bootstrapped. It's mostly bootstrapped. I see that as a win for our companies and for the entire ecosystem, the more diverse opinions and the more diverse individuals that we allow in or, or encourage to join or make feel safe enough that they, they want to dip their toe in. So I'm obviously a firm believer. I think it goes without saying in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Since MicroConf in 2012, we have had some very deliberate efforts to improve the diversity of the ecosystem because I feel like it's all of our responsibility. It's not just the people running an event or running a fund, but attendees as well. And so if you're out there thinking, you know, how can I improve this? Number one, I think go out of your way to look for more diverse candidates when you're hiring at your own company. I'd say making an environment that, that is safe and welcoming to anyone who wants to show up, regardless of racial category, gender categories. I think that uh, goes a long way towards, towards doing it. And I think inviting people in. One of the biggest ways we've seen diversity improve at MicroConf, and it has improved since the first event in 2011, where we had like 3% female attendees, I believe. I'm going from memory, but it was very low. 
And that was why by the time we got to 2012, we were like, how do we fix this? You know, and it turns out, surprise, it's not an easy fix. This is not something that anyone can wave a magic wand or anyone can snap their fingers and make this suddenly equitable and amazing. And if we could, we would do that. But this is a decade or decades long effort. And what I've seen, I believe at microconf has gone from three to about somewhere in the 12 to 15 percent just speaking purely of, of female attendees or non-male attendees, gone from about 3 up to 12 to 15%, depending on the event. And we have numbers you know, also for um, racial diversity, ethnic diversity, and all that. But I don't know those uh, off the top of my head like I do these other ones. And so what we've seen is there has been improvement. And in fact, it's in line. The, the attendee breakdown now at a microconf is in line with the general startup ecosystem. We run the State of Independent SaaS survey every year. We've done it for the past three years. And we ask about these things. And one of the reasons is because we wanted to get a picture of what is the ecosystem like, you know, and then, and then we can, because the whole ecosystem needs to improve. You can't magically say, well, the ecosystem only has 10% of this category of individual, but we're going to somehow get 20% to attend a microconf. It, it's just not the way it works. We have made incredible efforts to reach out to groups, to comp tickets. That's why our scholarship program exists. And it is a long, slow battle. And that brings me back to the point I was going to make, which is one of the biggest differences we've seen is when individuals who are already in the ecosystem invite someone they know into the ecosystem. So invite someone to a microconf who is, you know, not a white male. Uh, white men are, wish I knew the number off the top of my head, I think it's 80 to 88%, somewhere in that range of people in the broader um, kind of bootstrapper indie SaaS startup ecosystem. And so anyone who is either not white or not a man is by definition underrepresented in the ecosystem. And so we've seen great strides being made with folks inviting an underrepresented friend to a microconf or asking if they want to attend a microconf remote or invite them to listen to Startups and the Rest of Us. It's a free podcast and it's available. And I would, I would hope and encourage you to think about it as something that's available to everyone, even underrepresented founders. So that's one way I, that I think about it. And frankly, we could do, we could write a whole book on it. We could do many podcasts on it. But I want to, you know, kind of say one other thing is what we realized at MicroConf specifically is there are things we can control, like who speaks from the stage. And then there are things that we really don't have much control over, which is who buys a ticket or gets a ticket and attends the event. And for a long time, we tried to change the second one. And that just has not been as effective as just having more diverse and unrepresented founders in MicroConf on air on this podcast, and on every microconf stage. And if you go to microconf.com, we have a DEI pledge. You can read about it in the footer. It kind of outlines a lot of what I've said here. But one thing that we realized early on was we didn't just want to have the same percentage of, let's say, women on stage as there are in the broader ecosystem. We want to try to double that number, right? We want to make progress, at least double. And there's been times where we three or four X that number, such as with our most recent two tiny seed batches, 40% of our companies have had at least one underrepresented founder versus in the broader ecosystem, again, it's that 12 to 15% number. It's a, you know, it's a pretty, pretty low number. So I think that, that each of us can and should play a part. And it's, it's not one person's responsibility. It is all of our responsibility to contribute to diversity in startups and making people feel included and welcomed into this ecosystem. Because that's what I love about bootstrapping. To me, I know this word meritocracy in the Silicon Valley, you know, people roll their eyes at it. And I agree that it's kind of bullshit, uh, as you can tell by the numbers. Bootstrapping, to me, is about as close to meritocracy as I know anywhere. Because when I started my companies, 
when I've underrepresented and, you know, overrepresented friends who've all started this, these bootstrap companies and made hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, and no one knew who they were because they didn't need to go ask anyone for permission. They just needed to build a business. And so while I can't sit here and say, well, everyone has, you know, an equal starting point, because that's obviously not true. But what I can say is that bootstrapping is an incredible equalizer, and it may be the biggest equalizer in business today. It's certainly not venture capital, you know, and I know that, that VCs, are, all VCs are not equal, and I know that a lot of venture capitalists are making efforts towards building a more, you know, diverse and inclusive uh, startup ecosystem, but bootstrapping is that next level because it's all on the merits of a business. At that point, it's build something people want and are willing to pay for, and you can build an incredible business without asking anyone's permission. So this is, it's a great topic. Thank you, Justin, for asking the question. And uh, obviously that's a short summary of my thoughts on the topic, but I hope that was helpful. My next question uh, was an anonymous question. Someone had just emailed me and he said, when is the right time to work on things like company mission statements, philosophy, and values? And he says, hint, I don't think they belong at the same time. And I, I think this is an interesting Interesting question. You know, I often say, I think a lot of us left and started our own companies because we didn't want to deal with BS, like company mission, philosophy, and values, because we've all worked at large companies who use these buzzwords, right? Philosophy, values, mission, and then don't live up to them. And they're kind of made up in some boardroom and they're fiction. I was against introducing these into my companies that I was starting. But about the point that you hit, I'd say it's between seven to 10 people you start to realize that if you don't set some type of kind of agenda, you know, for the company or, or mission and values, then it will happen on its own. And if you don't get people's buy-in at that point, then by the time you get to 15 or 20 employees, you can have a real problem on your hands. And so for me, I think mission is something that I like to have these days. Like I think I've said on this podcast, but my mission is to multiply the world's population of independent self-sustaining startups. And it lets me know and, and reinforces what I stand for. And it helps me see the common thread. And I think easily explain the common thread of this podcast of MicroConf and of Tiny Seed. All three of those are helping to multiply the world's population of independent, self-sustaining startups. But back in the day when I was starting amazing bootstrapped lifestyle businesses to make five grand a month or 250 grand a year, I didn't need a mission. The mission was I'm going to provide value to an end user such that they're willing to pay for it. And the mission is for me to learn a lot of interesting things, to have freedom, right? That was a big mission and, and to gain purpose by building interesting things for customers who need them and then to maintain healthy relationships. I think those really were the early mission. So it, I think it depends on where you are in your journey as to if you're going to have a tiny little company with three or four contractors, I don't know that you need a mission, but I do think at seven to 10, it's like, what are you doing? Like, why, what is your company doing? What is the value that you provide? And I do think at that point, it's worth sitting down and chalking up a sentence and mulling it over. It probably took me several months to really land on, you know, the, the mission that I stated earlier. In terms of philosophy and values, I do think it's interesting. I was interviewing Omar Zenholm. He's the founder of Webinar Ninja. And he talked about how they didn't put values in writing anywhere and that they were just kind of communicated from one person to the next. And then they got to a point where there were 15 or 20 employees and the company had always had a value of frugality because they're bootstrapped. And New employees were joining with kind of the Fortune 500 mindset where they were not being frugal. And he realized this really needs to be written down. And frugality then with a nice little paragraph, maybe with an example or two about where we came from and how we think about this. 
And so it's that kind of example where I realize if you don't do it, by the time you get to 10, 15 employees, even if it's only three things, like your top three values that the company holds, and I think the big thing for me is try to make them specific and try to make them something you really believe and hold dear such that you would say it in a team meeting with a straight face, that you would put it on the website with a straight face. It shouldn't be marketing copy. It should actually describe how you're operating today and potentially how you aspire to operate. But I think that's what a lot of those Fortune 500 companies do is they write what they really want to be and they're not actually acting that way. And so it's just, it's just eye roll worthy, right? Both inside and out. We agree to protect the interests. Our values are to protect the interests of investors and customers and this and that. And it's like, that's so generic. If you have something that is just implied and it should be in everyone's values, then don't do it. Don't do it. It's too generic. So that was a great question. I hope it was helpful. Our sponsor this week is Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. Microsoft for Startups is on a mission to help all founders innovate and grow no matter their background, location, or progress. To this end, they've recently launched Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub, a platform that provides founders with free resources to help solve startup challenges. Members of the platform get a ton of benefits that can help founders build their startup faster from day one. Up to $150,000 in Azure credits, free development tools like GitHub, free Microsoft collaboration and productivity software like Teams and Outlook, offers from startup-friendly partners, and more. A strong and diverse network is critical to a startup's success, and so Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub is making this historically inaccessible resource open to all by providing members access to a mentor network as well as technical advisors. Members can book time with mentors to get expert feedback and advice on their product roadmap, business plan, fundraising approach, marketing plan, and more. The program is open to everyone, no matter your startup stage. And unlike other programs, there are no funding requirements. And the sign-up process takes less than five minutes. Learn more about Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub at aka.ms slash startups for the rest of us. That's aka.ms slash startups for the rest of us. My next question is from Salmon, and the subject line is how to actually develop features for a new app. Salmon writes, when working on a new project, there are various ways to complete features. One style is to go deep into a feature and make it near production worthy. Others may take a broader approach and create a skeleton structure and then go back and fill in the details on each specific feature. What style do you prefer? And are there certain habits that eventually lead to a project never shipping? Yes, there are many habits that lead to projects never shipping, like people getting in their own way, people building in the basement or in their garage for a year people overbuilding features, gold plating software, building a bunch of features nobody needs, not talking to potential customers, procrastinating, not wanting to make mistakes. There are a lot of habits in that respect. I don't know if the question is coming from someone who's basically saying like, I'm going to build these six features and I know that's going to be my initial app. Should I do an iterative approach where I write some skeleton code and then I come back and kind of cycle down and then build the database layer and then build the layer below that and then below that. I think that's, to me, just a preference style versus I'm going to go deep and build you know, a, a full feature all the way to production. The bigger question I would have, I, I would almost say this is not super relevant, the, the question. I don't think it's the right way to think about it. The way I think about it is figuring out what is that minimum feature set that you have, what is it, MLP, minimum lovable product or something like that, where it's a it's a product that people can actually use and get value out of. And what is that minimum feature set and how are you determining what that is? Because if the way you're determining it is asking yourself, not talking to potential customers, not going into the market, 
it's probably not going to be correct. And so I think that's something that I would be focusing on is how do I determine the minimum features that I need to ship something that people want and maybe are willing to pay for or at least get me closer to that and then iterate. So I can talk about some things that I wouldn't build. And in fact, we didn't build in the last couple apps that we launched. I can use Drip as an example. But we didn't have password reset when we launched. We didn't have billing built because we knew we had 30 days. We had a 30-day trial at the time. We knew we had 30 days to build our subscription billing. And even then, we didn't need it to be a subscription. We knew we could run it manually if we needed to. We didn't build the ability to delete things. So people could, could start an email they could send an email, you know, as an email service provider. So think of like MailChimp with different features. They could send an email. They couldn't then go back and delete that email. Eventually, someone would need that, but we didn't build it in. We didn't build sorting in that email grid. We built minimum analytics. It was just a bare bones, bare bones. And so if that's what Solomon is asking, then I do think that you have to ask yourself, you know, what is that minimum lovable feature? How can you build it in a way that is functional and that early adopters will get value out of, but that can save you weeks of dev time. One example I can think of that is we built 35 integrations in about 18 months with Drip. Because if you think about it, as an email service provider, we wanted it to be a hub for a lot of data, both inbound data coming into us, triggers that came in, and actions that, that went out. So we integrated with a bunch of shopping carts. You know, there was Stripe and PayPal, and there was Gumroad, and can't remember the others. But we integrated with a bunch of carts. We integrated with a bunch of things like Zapier and a bunch of automation providers. But the, the V1 of each of those integrations, we didn't know how many people would adopt them. So we would go in and we had a framework and we could launch a V1 of an integration with a third party with about four hours of code if they had a good solid REST API with good documentation. Maybe eight hours if it was a little, a little less that. Now, there were some old curmudgeonly integrations. I think the PayPal one took us several days because it's PayPal, right? And it's 23 years old or whatever. But we could build an integration in less than a day on the technical side. And then, to be honest, we spent more person hours than, than a day building out all the marketing and the, you know, the co-promotion, the business development side of it. But we would launch that, and it didn't have OAuth built in. It didn't have all the bells and whistles of a finished integration. So maybe you have to go copy and paste an API key. Maybe you have to do some things that aren't ideal. But then we'd see what the adoption was, and we would start getting support requests of like, oh my gosh, this integration is amazing. Now I can tag all my people who buy through PayPal or Stripe, and I can tag them as you know purchasers or as customers. This is game-changing for me. And then over time, as we'd, we'd see, oh, there's like 80 people using this integration, you know, at a time when we had 1,000 customers, we had 80 people using an integration. It's like, that's a lot of people. So let's throw it in the, the feature queue to circle back on this and do a V2 version, which just makes a little better, better error handling, surfaces the OAuth or whatever. And then I think we had like kind of a V3 that actually included OAuth. And so that's how we thought about a lot of features. Not all of them. You, that's where you have to think about, you have to weigh that thought of certain features, if you launch them as V1s that are not fully baked, it can be detrimental to your product and to your brand. And so an example of one of those was our visual workflow builder. And you, know, you can go to drip.com still today and you can see that workflow builder and what it looks like. Launching that half-baked would have been a bad decision. And in fact, my co-founder Derek spent five months he was a lead developer and he spent five months of his time building that. And we were okay with that. And we agreed that this needed to be, be amazing. It needed to look amazing. It needed to work amazing. And we built an entire, basically another product launch on the back of that because it was the, th I believe it was the third visual builder 
that was that was in existence in terms of marketing automation. And it was the easiest to use. We innovated on in a few areas. It wasn't totally drag and drop. We had these exit nodes. Anyways, there were, there were several things we did that no one else did. And we wanted it to work really well. And we got a massive influx. Our growth doubled that month. And can, it was a sustained doubling of, of the growth. It was an incredible launch and an incredible feature. And so that was one that we kind of bet. We did not bet the company on it because if it had flopped, we would have stayed in business. But we did bet five months of engineering time. One individual, he did it all on, all on his own, but we bet a lot of engineering time. And frankly, if it hadn't worked, competitors you know, were making progress against us during that time. And it was kind of painful to, to do that. So that's, that's how I think about it, Salman. I think it's a you know, good question to be thinking about this, but realizing that what you build is perhaps more important than, than how you build it, you know, the specifics of how you build it. Aside from, you should write unit tests. So I would, I would never build another app without having unit tests because that became such a blanket of comfort when we would want to make gutsy, adventurous decisions that were going to break a bunch of legacy stuff, but we knew it was better for the way that the app was moving. And with the massive test coverage we had, it gave us the confidence to be able to do that. And a lot of apps that I've seen that don't have that, they get crufty and they get buggy. And I think if you want to build something for the long term and you want to build a business that you can be proud of, I think that you need to seriously think about spending the extra time to write those tests from the start. Don't be in such a hurry that you don't that you don't do it. So thanks for the question, Salman. I hope that was helpful. Our last question of the day is from Luis O'Sullivan, and he asks, how do I start? He says, hey, love your podcast, and it's given me such a great insight into the world of startups and introduced me to lots of interesting companies I've never heard of. I'm 24. I just graduated from my computer science bachelor's degree in Ireland last May. I've always wanted to be my own boss and run my own company. I'm very ambitious and love building things once I get started. I'm never good at coming up with ideas, though, and I find myself always panicking that I'll never be able to work for myself because I'll never be able to get started. Currently working as a software dev for a large company, but I don't want to be here forever. Do I need to calm down and wait for inspiration, or do I need to leave my comfort zone and actively search for an idea? Any advice would be great. It's a good question. In my opinion, you need, to, you need to actively search for an idea. And I would be in forums like Indie Hackers and MicroConf Connect. And I would be in those communities watching other people to see how they come up with ideas. The, I believe the number one way that folks come up with ideas, according to our State of Independence SAS survey, is it's a problem they experience or a problem that like a coworker or, or a friend or colleague has experienced, or it's a problem that they experienced at work. So usually it's a problem that someone around you has. And we have a bunch of tiny seed companies that have had like bad customer experiences where they had a home improvement contractor working on their house and the communication was terrible. So he decided to build CRM for home improvement contractors. It's called Builder Prime. And we've had folks who have just made cold calls like you probably heard, what was it, 20 episodes ago, but with Senior Place where he came up with an idea and made 30, 40 cold calls and realized that wasn't a good idea, but it gave him the information to pivot into a new idea. And it's that whole thing of like getting out there, doing things in public, like making cold calls or setting up landing pages or blogging or writing or tweeting, doing things in public creates opportunity. And a lot of times that's where you will come across those opportunities or those business ideas that maybe you wouldn't have if you were just waiting for inspiration to strike. Even listening to a podcast like this or a podcast like My First Million or Tropical MBA, these are podcasts where people talk about businesses and they talk about pain points. I think it was last episode or maybe it was two episodes ago where I specifically said if someone built a competitor, a solid competitor to Submittable, 
I would be interested. You know, there are pain points that we experience running Tiny Seed and MicroConf in this podcast that I think could easily be businesses. And so just tuning into these types of shows and being around these types of people and absorbing that and being on the lookout, you know, and keeping that idea notebook. I've talked about this quite a bit. Keeping an idea notebook of as you come up with ideas, jot them down. And as you hear ideas on podcasts or as you listen to audiobooks or whatever, jot them down and then let them simmer, right? We have a, a 48 hour waiting period on buying domains. Otherwise, like Dan and Ian say, your GoDaddy account, Namecheap account starts looking like the Boulevard of Broken Dreams. So you don't want to get carried away and start registering a domain for every idea you put in that notebook. Give it two or three days to simmer down. But that's what I would be doing. And I would be on the lookout for problems and pain points that I experience in my work, in my day-to-day, my personal life. I try not to let it be too much personal stuff because then you get into B2C. And of course, that's not something that I love. But the other thing I do think about, Luis, if you haven't checked out the stair-step approach to bootstrapping, you know, a lot of that talks about, hey, maybe if you're gifted at writing or at building courses, maybe start there and use that to kind of level up your skills. But if you really want to build a software product, consider looking at one of the ecosystems, like there's Shopify, there is um, you know, AutoCAD, there is Photoshop, there is Heroku, you know, there are all these ecosystems where even like WordPress, where you can build an add-on and you don't have to learn all of the things at once. You can just learn building the product, you know, and supporting it. But a lot of the marketing and even the billing is often handled for you. And I believe there is a kind of complete list of, or or incomplete, but at least semi-complete list of like 15 or 20 of those app stores in quotes that you can build a web app, you know, into. There's there's the Chrome app store there. You know, I could keep going with them, but look for a list of those and then, you know, think about which of these you think might be the best fit for your skill set. So I feel your pain and I'm glad you wrote in. I will say we've all been there. I was there. You're ahead of me at 24 already thinking about this and already listening to a podcast like this. I think that you will cut a lot of time off of your journey. And I, of course, wish you the best as you get going. So that feels like a great time to wrap up. I'm almost out of listener questions. If you have a question, please email it into questions at startupsfortherestofus.com or just head to the website, startupsfortherestofus.com. There's an ask a question link. You can send in a video, a text question or audio and video and audio always go to the top of the stack. I haven't actually had video or audio in quite some time. It's been several months now. Maybe I need to go check my automations. Maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe there's a bunch of, uh, you know, in the backlog. But all that to say, thanks for joining me again this week. As always, it's great to have you here. Hope you enjoyed this episode and do send in your questions for the next listener question episode. I'm at Rob Walling on Twitter. I look forward to connecting and I'll be back in your ears again next Tuesday morning. Mm-hmm.